Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is December 6, 2012, and this is episode 1035 of the Survival Podcast. And I'd like to take today, right now, this second, to do something I should have done a few days ago. I should have done this on Monday. We have entered the month of December. Now, a lot of people are going to look at that and go, that means Christmas is almost here. Yeah, I know. I feel the same way, especially since right after Christmas, I'm closing on my new property, going through a big move, so it has a double connotation for me. Or the new year is going to be here, uh, things like that. Or maybe if you're crazy, you think on December 21st, all the Mayans are going to rise from the earth as it splits in half, and a giant planet from Nubar or whatever is going to crash into us, or a brown dwarf star is going to eat us, or whatever you think. Well, that that ain't going to happen. But you know what I should have told you? Tick, tick, tick. The clock is ticking. Time is passing. 2012 is about to be gone. Are you working toward liberty or not? Because you're on a sliding scale in the world of liberty. Folks are either putting more of it into your life or it's eroding. There is no static. There is no static in liberty. It's moving forward or backward. It's the only way that it can work in our modern system. The system itself is not moving towards liberty. We all know that. So our only choice is to carve it out in our own lives. Think about that as we go through an interesting concept today. You see what I'm going to talk about today? I had this guy Brian Newhouse on earlier this week. He's a Peace Corps guy, uh, permaculturist. I think he's quite libertarian-minded in a way, but I also think, you know, there's certain things you're thinking about when you're thinking about building an eco-village in Haiti versus building one in the developed world like the United States, and there's some things that maybe you come up with. So there were some questions when people started to read his book and read his website, like, do you really think this way or whatever? And understand, I bring a guest on, it doesn't mean I think exactly like they do. I think there's a lot of validity, a lot of good stuff came from that conversation. But I have my own way that I would build a permaville here in the developed world that I think would be an interesting discussion today and more of the logistics than the components. Because I think the components are known. We know how to build solar energy systems. And in my system, as you'll see today, building a solar energy system or using a windmill or going without power or having a generator or tying into the electrical grid or whatever is going to be mostly the choice of the individual. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that works out. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one is one of my good friends. He really has become a good friend to myself, the show, and the community. Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com. You know, the cool thing about Chef Keith is he doesn't try to come off like some artsy-fartsy chef like a lot of people do. He's, he's big on cooking seasonally and locally. And instead of trying to really focus on the whole chef thing, when it comes to teaching you how to cook, he's teaching gourmet cooking versus chefdom. Because there's things that chefs do in restaurants, folks, you're not going to do it in your home. Because you don't have a gas gas system that can push temperatures as quickly as high as a commercial quality restaurant does unless you're really, really lucky. So there's certain limitations we have when we're in our homes. 
But if we keep things simple and use proper technique, we can make great food, even from our preps. Chef Keith will show you how to do that. And hey, if you want to make your food go over the top, check out some of his seasoning mixes, specifically low and slow barbecue, uh, the grilled chicken seasoning, and my favorite is Montreal steak. Check them out today, harvesteating.com. Next up today, the Free State Project. Hey, there's a way you can vote other than with your pocketbook, which is actually a better way to vote than in the ballot box. The third way is with your feet. This is a republic, and that means that the states are to compete against each other for the best ideas. And in a republic, you have freedom of movement between the member states, and the member states have a given amount of sovereignty over the federal government or the union of the states. And the idea is that the states that do the best job will attract the best people. Well, about 10,000 people are working on moving to a place called New Hampshire because it's a highly representative form of government, a motto like live free or die, and their goal is to turn New Hampshire into an example by making it the freest state in the union. You can vote with your feet by joining them there at the Free State Project. If you can't move to New Hampshire, if it just ain't in the cards for you, a fight for liberty someplace is a fight for liberty ever, every place. Remember that. So you can do things like attend their events. I will be speaking at the Liberty Forum in February in New Hampshire. So you can join us there. I'm not moving to New Hampshire, but I support them. I give them this commercial advertising spot that other people pay for. They get it for free. This is my contr uh, contribution to the Liberty Movement, uh, and I think that it's one of the best places I can place my contribution. I talk to you about it every day, but there's a place for collective action and a place for individual action. Check them out today at freestate.org. All right, next up, check out TSP Copper and TSP Gear. We got good stuff there. 13 Skills is rocking. No long speech on it today. Just real quick, uh, progress report. 1,183 members in six days. 12,867 goals set. Get on over to 13skills.com and make, you know, get your account set up, get going. Uh, people were asking yesterday, I didn't realize I had to participate in social media because we let me, we let you put like your Facebook and your YouTube and stuff like that in there. You don't have to put that stuff in there. You put in whatever you want. It's all optional. It's a voluntarist website, guys. All right. Uh, next up, consider joining the member support brigade. Help support the work we do here at the Survival Podcast. You shut the show off at the end of the day and you think, man, that was worth 18.3 cents. Then consider joining the member support brigade. And if you use the benefits and the discounts and everything else, you get all your money back many times over. Just go to the site, click on members or click on the member support brigade banner and you'll find out more about the member support brigade. Military law enforcement, Peace Corps. And first responders like paramedics, you get a special discount before you join. Email me, service discount on the subject line. Tell me about what you did. I'll send you the discount code. Okay, with that wrapped up, let's get into it. Or get right stuck into it, as Jeff Lawton, one of my uh, permaculture mentors, would say. It, I, I want to start out with something I want to be very clear about today. Because I can tell that some people weren't clear about Brian Newhouse's vision for something like this when he put it down and said, this is what I would do. Um... This is about what I would do with a piece of property that I personally or through a group of like-minded individuals purchased and owned apart from the system and any rules, concepts, regulations, anything like that, as minimal as you'll see that they'll be, would be designed to exist within the boundaries of this community, which is privately and collectively owned. I'll explain how that works in a bit. For the members of the community who were part of it by choice, it is not an edict on what anybody anywhere else on any part of the planet should ever feel compelled to do. 
if they look at what we're doing and they went, I think that is great, then they should feel compelled to do it because it's their choice. And if they go, I like this, 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 and this, but I don't like that, you do what you want in your community, we'll do what we want in our community. That's the concept that's done through. And I need to say something today because I know I hear from a lot of anarchists a lot of times about voluntarist society. And what I need to explain to a lot of that contingent of my audience, I am a libertarian by, by practical application day to day because I see it as the most functional thing that we can do to drag an existing system that's headed toward totalitarianism back toward liberty. I think it's practical. I think people can understand it. And I think that some level of enforcement is necessary to preserve liberty. In other words, I think it's great that everybody should be able to do whatever they want as long as they don't harm anybody else. But I think when somebody decides, I'm just going to take what that person has, there needs to be an enforcement arm that's independent that comes in and goes, yeah, you can't do that. And if you do that, we're going to take you away and make you go away for a long time into a dark place. We'll call prison. Or maybe if your crime is heinous enough, we will stretch your neck with a rope from a tree. But that doesn't need to be done in a lynch mob. And I think so there's this, this, place there, but as an idealist, if you said what would be perfect if it could exist, I'm a voluntarist. I don't think anybody should be compelled by anybody else to do anything anybody else doesn't want to do. But that doesn't mean there can't be rules if you're part of a group. So you're not compelled to be part of my group, but if you're part of my group, and when I say my group, I don't mean the group that I own and rule over. I mean the group that we've collectively formed and agreed upon. Then we have certain things we do within the group. Free to leave. But if you want to be part of it, this is the requirement. That's a voluntary society. The problem we have in government is you're made part of groups that you don't want nothing to do with. Right? That violate your ethical considerations, your moral considerations. So as an ideal, I'm voluntarist all the way. As a practical matter, I'm a minarchist libertarian. Please understand, that's the viewpoint that's being presented here. Um, the society would be something that could exist in a voluntary society if we, you know, didn't have anybody could just go, I like what you've done, so I'll take it from you. Okay? All right. So, first of all, my community would be started from scratch. So, all involvement is voluntary. I would not attempt to go in and take a place that's already set up with people living there that don't and say, I'm going to, well, I'm going to buy the center of this thing and we're all going to be part of this and come on and join us. Because when somebody went out and bought their house, whether it's 10 acres in the, in the rural community or a quarter acre in the suburbs, they bought it with a certain expectation that it would be the way that it is. And if I go in and try to alter that, and I'm not saying that a group of neighbors can't get together and do this, I'm just saying it usually has poor results. So I think you're better off with an undeveloped piece of land and you set up the entire thing in advance and you say, this is how it's going to work. If you'd like to be part of it, please come join us. Here's how we're going to do this. And you can go, I like that. I want to be part of that. And here's the cost and considerations necessary to make it happen. Or I don't like that so they can go screw. And I think that's the only way that you can do something this dramatically different from the way life's been going. Now, I believe that if you build enough things like this in enough places, that a lot of people that come see it will do it and it'll multiply. And eventually people will start to take existing neighborhoods and communities and convert them over by choice. But it'll always look different, and that's the way it works when there's liberty. Not everybody's going to do shit the same way. And we really need to understand that so, one, we can be free to build what we want, and two, we can give others the freedom to build what they want. You can't have liberty, but say it only works your way. 
And I've dealt with one particular anarchist who has told me that I'm immoral for voting. This is how far this can go. So you should be able to do whatever you want, but to vote is immoral. To vote so that a person can use marijuana as a medication, that's immoral. I'm using force, and I'm using a gunpoint to victimize the innocent, is what this guy said. Never mind that the guy's on government assistance and gets a nice government check every month. But he doesn't vote, so he's not part of the system. I am because I choose to exercise that right. I don't know. right? So we have to realize that if you're going to take this standpoint of I'm willing to let others do what they want, then you actually have to mean it. And the beauty is that frees you to actually say, well, in my community, this is what I would want to build. And then you have to compromise because you've got to get people on board with you. So I might lay something out here today and think it's a great idea, and I might have 20 or 30 people go, you know what, we'll do that with you, but this is what we want to change. And I have to say I'm willing to look for other people or I'm willing to make that compromise. That is a decision based on working together. I just want to clear that out. So, because I'm going to go into rules first, right? So, you heard me with Brian, and I'm like, I, I don't want rules. I want freedom. But I also believe that, that certain rules preserve freedom. So, my first rule would be individuals may use their personal property any way that they choose, period. Okay? So, In this community, and I'll get to the structure of it later, but let's say you had a one-acre lot in this community, and then there's a community common area, pathway behind your property or beside your property that leads to another common area, and there's this buffer zone between you and your neighbor. I'd actually like to do that. I'd like your property line to end, your neighbor's property line to end, and enough space exists there to grow some collective food and stuff like that, and a pathway that people could walk in between, and there's you guys actually are separated. You don't abut each other. I think that solves a lot of problems right there and it makes more effective use of distributed design from a permaculture standpoint but on your property line if you want a pool you put a pool in now if the state or the local government wherever we're existing has certain requirements for you i can't get you out of that i'd like to make this as remote off-grid whatever it takes to give you as much freedom as possible from but i can't override the state or the county or the city right i just can't i'd love to but i can't so but if it falls within those boundaries You do it, it's your business, and nobody gets to bitch about it at all. Right? You want 20 chickens? I don't care. As long as there's not a law that says you can't do it. Right? Because if you do something that violates the law, you risk everybody. So we got to keep things legal. At least the stuff that's highly visible legal, right? Because there's legal and moral, and those two, we won't get into that today. But that is the basic rule. You don't get to bitch. He has an old car laying in his front yard. It's his yard. Tough crap. Because that's not why people move to a place like this. So they can have perfectly manicured lawns and nobody has a broke down old car. Right? Okay. Second rule would be, people most, must attempt to solve problems directly first. So if you do have an issue with one of your neighbors, it is incumbent upon you as an agreement to be part of this society to go over and say, hey Tom, we disagree about this. And the two of you try before anybody calls the police, anybody calls code enforcement, anybody calls anybody else. The two of you go and try to solve the problem first. This is a gentleman's agreement walking the door. We agree, yes. Yes, we, we will know our neighbors. We're part of a community. We're not here to be faceless with each other. If I have a problem, I'll, uh, and I will take it as a gentleman to the fellow neighbor. I won't go over, Tom, you're a freaking jerk. You better change this. Or I'm no, right? This is my concern. Let me hear what you have to say. Why, why is this a concern? I don't think this would happen very often in a community like this, but sooner or later it's going to. That's the procedure. You go together first. The third rule, all parties seek community arbitration before contacting the quote-unquote authorities. So if you and Tom can't resolve your problem, 
then you come before the community and you say, Tom and I have this irreconcilable difference on this issue. The community appoints four or five or six or how many people we think we need that aren't really directly involved with this at all, that can be independent. They listen to both sides of the case, and then they hand down not a judgment but a recommendation for how the problem can be solved. The two parties go away on a 48-hour cooling-off period. They come back to the arbitration board and they say, we agree to this, I can do this, I can do this. Or they say, there's certain things I still can't agree on. The arbitration board hears it further out, makes another recommendation, and then there's another, unless they agree right away and say that'll work, another 48-hour cooling-off period. They come back and if they can't agree at that point, then the matter has to go to legal recourse. Do you know how many people would take call the county sheriff or something if that situation was put in place? And yes, if somebody's going to try to kill somebody or something like that, yeah, right? So there's emergency versus just irritation. So in an emergency situation, and you have some local community authority there as well, right? You just, I mean, if somebody tried to kick your neighbor's door in and steal their stuff, you probably would intervene. So there's that direct intervention as well because you can't rely on authority when you're remote to begin with even a little bit remote, which is probably better for something like this than you know out in the middle of the West Texas, Texas desert. But that would be the process. The fourth rule, no one may harm another or take their property. And I think this rule would be enforced that if you actually harm, you are in danger of losing your rights in the community. You may be forced to sell your share, not have it seized, but you may go out. You may simply say, if you steal or physically injure intentionally. Or we may say there's some method of recourse. But I do think that the property rights of your neighbors and the rights to their person in a community like this should be respected. And if you don't want to do that, don't come here in the first place. And I, you know, I, well, is it really? No, we know, right? I'm talking physical altercation, actually attacking somebody. Now, what if the person wants to forgive you? That's between you and them. Because first rule, or second rule, attempt to solve your problems directly first. Second, the third rule, arbitration. Fourth rule, outside authorities. Okay, um, and, and then the fifth rule, common areas have their own rules. Common areas, have, and we, I don't know what those are yet. Because that would be based where are you at, how big is it, how is it shaped, what is its purpose. One community might differ from the other. You know, you can build more than one of these. Right, So there would be certain things, but no one would be compelled to be involved, but no one would be prevented from being involved. All right, Now, let's kind of look at the concept of private property along with collective ownership and how I would do this. I talked about this before, um, so this part's not new anyway. I would figure that each land unit, so if you bought a lot and, and came into this community under this type of an agreement, would be one share of the whole. You own the lot, but let's say the lot owns a share in the common area. And by owning the lot, you own the share. If you bought two lots, you would have two shares. And therefore, you would have two votes. And therefore, if there's any kind of a dividend, it would be distributed at a, a, a modifier of times two back to you because you put more in coming in. Because you would sell these lots for more than the cost of buying the raw land and putting the basic infrastructure in. There would be a profit that would be used to develop the common areas until they could be providing for themselves. And as an owner, you would be due back a return on your investment. And your ownership of the property would constitute an investment in the overall community in the common area. It's actually, it sounds complicated, but it's very simple. 
it's it, it's it's a lot like what they do when you buy a house in a you know modern theme park style HOA and there's a pool and everything and everybody helps to pay for it except instead of it just being something that sucks resources it's something that creates resources so while some things have to go in initially when a surplus comes out they're distributed to the community so that's how you get collective and private ownership you own the lot the lot owns a collective share and you get a vote and a return and some burden to help the the total but your your real thing that happens there is when you buy in you've kind of seeded that already so that goes to kind of the next use common areas are managed for community and commercial use so the, for the the common area to provide value it must be a nice place that you'd want to go to if there's a pond you might want to fish there right and you'd have a pond on your own property if you want to You keep your own fish there. But the community ponds for anybody that wants to, to go down there and fish at or feed the ducks that are there or just sit there and draw a picture or float around in a boat or whatever you want to do. It's yours. And it's first to serve the community and second to serve commercial needs. So as you plant a bunch of food and, and, and distributed agriculture throughout it and there's a harvest, then people can freely take of it. You know, and early on when there's not a lot of it, maybe it gets collectively harvested and distributed based on the share count. But at the point where the community goes, I, I don't, we don't need any more almonds. And you have a cash crop and they get sold out. Okay? Then that creates a return. That return comes into the, the collective trust that holds the community land. If the land has certain burdened expenditures, the money is first used to support the land. The surplus, which is profit or gain, gets distributed amongst the landholders. Who can choose to take it or reinvest it? It's their choice. Individually, not collectively. It's up to individuals to decide. 100% non-compulsory involvement. You have done all you need to do by buying in. Hopefully you'll put something back. I think most people would. Especially in a society where everybody knows each other. It's amazing what happens when you get the government and bread tape and bureaucracy and the ability to narc out your neighbor for anything you don't like without even knowing his first name. Amazing what happens when you do that. Um, community needs will go before commercial gain, though. That is a priority. So the land is first designed to feed the people of the community before we're designing it to go outside of the community through an export or an educational or tourist-based income. Okay, So that would be absolutely important there. Um, all commercial gain, again, is distributed among the shareholdings. Expenditures and purchases are voted on by the shareholders. So... When there is a return of surplus back into the land, the land has made a profit, and there's some portion of the money remaining in there, okay? And we have to decide, do we add a tractor or do we build a bunkhouse so that we can bring in people uh, as an educational platform to make even more money? Which one of those is a better deal, okay? You vote on that. And the, the side that wins the vote, after everybody's made their case, that's how the money gets spent within what, that's what's returned, retained by the company as a company profit and reinvested so it becomes an expense we don't pay taxes on it. All right. Now here's how you, here's where you solve the problem of, but Joe took his dividend, put it in his pocket and didn't leave it there. Joe doesn't get to vote on that round of expenditures. Joe didn't contribute. To, Joe took the money out, 
And the way that it would work would be simple. The, the, the company as a whole, or the collective as a whole, has profited $20,000. And let's say we had 20 shareholders. You have two choices. You can take a 50% distribution or a 100% distribution. If you take a 100% distribution, here's your $1,000. Do with it as you will. If you take a 50% distribution, and we're, we were saying this time we'd like a 50% holdback for reinvestment in the community, then you take 500 and you leave 500. If 10 people do that, there's five grand there. Those 10 people vote how that money gets spent. That's as fair as I can make it and provide for the needs. Right? Now, does that mean that Joe that took the thousand out gets to benefit from it? Yeah, but he gets no say in how it's done. And I think to do it another way and say, we say that X percent is always withheld takes away individual choice and I don't want to do it. Would it be better? I don't know. Is it how you would do it? Build your own. Is it how I would have to do it to get people on board? I don't know. Would I have to do 100% distribution and let people contribute back whatever they choose? I don't know. But I do see that if you can build something that works that way, you eliminate the need for like membership dues and taxes and community taxes. Because this could be built into something the size of a small city over time. It could continue to expand. If you bought smart, you could keep buying adjacent undeveloped land and I mean, you could have your own stores and you got it, right? So this is something that you have to think about scalability with as well. So as you get something bigger, it requires more cost. But what if towns and cities and communities were built with the intent of making a profit and instead of taking money away from the citizenry to support it, taking what's necessary to support it and distributing the profit back to the community? Flip it around so it works for the people who've built it in the first place who've put their blood, sweat, and tears into it, okay? Um, but it doesn't mean that there would be no need for things to go in. So all community dues, if you want to call them, would be completely voluntary. Just completely voluntary. You want to throw some money in to help out because you can this month? Go ahead. You don't want to? That's okay. Does that give you any additional voting rights? I don't think so. Because it's voluntary, so it's not for incentive. The, the, the voting rights on profit would be based on, so, but what if a person says, well, I'm willing to pay for um, the maintenance on the tractor this month. I'm just willing to pay for it. Then I think that money gets distributed as that person chooses. So I think if you're making a contribution for a specific thing, then that's what the community is obligated to use it for. Or five people get together and go, you know what, we can take care of the tractor. And people go, well, is it fair? It's not about, see, again, this is where you got to get your head out of modern society where everybody's told, okay, you made X, so you pay Y, and you made Z, so you pay A, right? And it's different percent. No, 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 This is voluntary society actually functioning and working. What about the guy that doesn't pull his weight? He's not going to be happy, right? It's going to be amazing the way that people figure out to pull their weight that can't do it financially. Because I would say that community dues can be sweat, they can be commodity, or they can be monetary. So, You know, if a guy joins a community like this that owns a construction company and he owns excavators and stuff like that and he's using his equipment to do work, that brings a lot of value, doesn't it? If somebody joins this community and they're a carpenter by trade and they're building the bunkhouse so the community only has to put up the material cost of it so that you can do... So all of these things need to be quantified into a value. And that doesn't mean necessarily a voting thing or a prominence in the community. It just means an understanding and a valuing of that community member by the other community members. 
In other words, if that community member ever comes down on some problems, you can bet the rest of the community is going to rally around them. It's, people solve their problems when they're allowed to. It's, it's amazing that that actually works. Uh, so I just think that there's some level of understanding that a person that spent every penny they had to build a structure and get into a community like this, that's basically now just got enough money to get by, especially in the early stages while this community is developing, uh, just because they're not able to forego maybe an early profit, but if they're down there busting their butt, that that has value too. And there's no rules for this. It's just respected and understood. That's part of joining in the beginning. Um, the functions, goals, and operations. Again, I, I think individual home sites are in the one-acre range. And let me say something about size. I think you're looking at a 50-acre or larger site to do this right. And like a 100 would be ideal, but it may not be financially feasible. And I don't think people definitely you know, like have to live on site either. I think if you want to buy a piece of land in a place like this and not build a house for 10 years, that's your business. If you want to buy a piece of land, if there's electricity available, we'll get to that in a second, have an, a meter put in, put in a concrete pad and show up every once in a while with an RV and hang out, that's your business. It's your land. That doesn't mean you have to build a certain way. It doesn't mean you have to build a certain house. There's certain things, again, I cannot absolve a person of from a liberty standpoint in conflict with the state, a county, a government, something like that. right? But whatever is legal is permitted. And I wish that I could just take some of the illegalities away, but I can't. But that, so you can use that however you want. But at one acre minimum, and then there has to be a cost associated with that. And I think that the person should get something. It shouldn't just be four sticks on the ground, there's your property, have at it. The property for something like this needs to be developed in some way. There has to be at least a gravel road, maybe a flattened out area for a home site. It might even be something that there's four or five different ways it can be have the bones put on it for you. And you pick yours and there's a cost associated with that. Any profit goes into the collective trust for the common land. I think about 20% of the total land should be common or infrastructure land. At least 20%. So on an 100 acres of community development, about 20 would be collective, minimum. And that's based on, well, how many people do we need? How many people can we actually find? How many people want to be permanent versus seasonal versus camping style residents? You know, people that are only there one month a year. Some people are there for the summer. Some people are there permanently. And as you're screening people coming in, you actually need a certain portion of people to be permanent residents. You need it to look out after everybody else. Because the person that says, well, I can come in and buy, and maybe that's the person with the construction company that lives two hours away and says, I can't live here. i got a business to run, but I like this, and I can build, I'll build my own house. And I'll bring my equipment in. And I'll help. I mean, you know, you know, once a month I'll come down here with a backhoe and do some things for people. Or grade the roads or whatever it is. So that's how you accommodate. Because then that person feels like, well, I can build that house. And when we build an earth mound structure all the way around it, planted, and we have the secure facility where, yeah, there's people coming in for educational and all, but it's all organized and controlled, and everybody's looking out after each other. My house there is safer than my house with me sitting in it at home. That breeds that confidence in each other. And there has to be some portion. So, you know, I would prefer if I had 100 acres to maybe put 30 acres in a common area. Maybe 40. Maybe, maybe a full half and half 50. It all depends. What's the land like? You know, what's suited for common area? Because, you know, what's, what's the value of 10 acres of that being a lake? How resilient is a community? 
of 50 households, if there's not a 10-acre, because it's not a pond anymore, a 10-acre lake, it's hugely resilient. You've got a massive water supply. That 10 acres can produce more fish than those people want to eat. Especially if it's managed in certain ways, using permaculture principles, using it for irrigation. I mean, that would be a massive. So it's all situationally dependent, but I think you're at an absolute minimum of 20%. Because I do, I would want to do things. I don't want anybody having their property line touch your neighbor's property line in this community. I just think that there's so many solutions right there. Right? If you want to put up a fence, it's your fence. No argument, no fighting, no nothing. Right? I see people all the time, they put the fence up, one foot on their side of the property line to make it that way in the first place. But then they get bitchy if their neighbor decides to put a fence in and goes one foot over their property line to tie into it so they can share the fence line. Right? It wouldn't be a problem. It wouldn't be a problem because that area may be five yards Right? Was it 15 feet? Yeah, in that area. Maybe 10 yards, depending on the land, how much is available, what it's like, would be this pathway planted up with everything from pecans to pomegranates so that your kids could, you know, go visit their, this is about a community, not, this is all mine, go screw, right? <laughs> and in that type of a distributed architecture of agriculture, I mean, you know, the community type that you could build there is huge. It'd be a place you'd want to raise your kids. And it'd be a place we'd want to make bigger. I mean, you'd, if you started with 50, you'd want to have already your mind on another 50 you could develop. That it joins it. You want to make this as big as possible, as inclusive as possible, yet protect the rights of the individuals that are as much as possible. To basically, you know, tell the county sheriff, we'll let you know if we need you. Gated community. You can't get in unless we let you in. I mean, that type of thing. You don't go telling John Law that to his face. That doesn't work good. But do you, if you put up a gate, you, you don't get a lot of visitors that you don't want. Um, I think that another thing to do, though, to make this work is to possibly go completely off-grid or as off-grid as possible. Not because I want to save polar bears. Not because I want to be the example of the green lifestyle or anything. One, the less grid-dependent you are, the less dependent your community is. And let's face it, we're preppers here. And we want as much resiliency as we can have. And if you build something that's self-sufficient, then if something else fails, you really don't care. That's part of it. But here's the other part of it. I've found, as I've looked at land, and I've really tried to find kind of the rural balance, and I could only go so far out with certain things and make everybody happy that had to be happy in this new decision. But the less you get, the less you are restricted. So as soon as you can run electricity onto a piece of property, there's a whole bunch more things that are required for you to do to do something with your own land. That may not be the case here, and I'm no expert on legalities like this, but once you start putting together something like this, you start to get into, whether you want to call it that or not, what the county looks at and calls a subdivision. And then all types of things start getting thrown at you. But I do know, for instance, up in Denton, Texas, which is not you know off-grid as far as you know has to be, there's a community there, and most of the people live in what you would call earthships or earthship-style homes. They have no electricity. There's no gas, uh, gas service I'm talking about, like a, a pipe coming in. Uh, no water service to this community. It's, it could be on grid. 
And there's very little interference by authorities or code officials. They pretty much live however they want to. Now, they have rules. Like, uh, as you might imagine, in a community like that, a lot of people are using power tools to do construction. And a lot of people are using generators to provide additional electricity. Well, they have a rule that at 5 p.m., any electrical, any, uh, any uh, what do you call them, uh, power tools, uh, lawnmowers, uh, idling engines, anything other than get in your car and leave, uh, that would be making noise off. You can do all that you want to from about 7 in the morning till 5 o'clock at night. I think that, if I remember right, that was the timeline. And people, when they, it's not like, oh, you're infringing, because when people become part of that community, they know that. And let's face it, no one wants to sleep next to their neighbor's house and hear all night. The reason they're building earth ships in the first place is they don't need a lot of power. That's their community. That's not Spirgo Libertoriaville, right? That's, that's, and I'm just giving you an example there. So I, I think you might look at that. I don't know if that's a decision because being able to bring a power, you know, electrical power in opens up a lot. It's not like there's nothing beneficial about that. But if you did it, you can darn well bet that every home site built there would be able to exist without the electrical grid. So it's a, it's a, you gotta skin that one when you get to it. If you find a perfect piece of land that's dirt cheap because it's almost impossible to bring power in, maybe you go that route. You still get into situations like when you want to put a septic system in, right? And a lot of people would, even if you didn't do it in general, like you didn't do it for people. Um, you, you, that's why you kind of have to go with the minimum one acre site because there's certain rules and regulations distances from property lines and stuff that it's hard to do on less than an acre in many localities anyway even though there's really no reason not to do it it's, it's an issue all the people say well what about composting toilets well people can do that if they want to but I want to leave as many options open so I would prefer that this be an on-grid community where you can actually get something like DSL now I do have a solution here that would make this community really attractive for people. A lot of people like me. If I can get good internet service, man, I can live anywhere. Finding it is a different story. But if you set something up like this, and you have basically a secure trust corporation that holds the collective land, well, that's a corporation. That's a business. So that opens a lot more possibility as long as phone service of any kind is available there for that corporation to purchase things like a T1 service or a bonded T1 or something like that and basically provide wireless internet access for the entire community with a few repeaters. And as you needed more, you buy more bandwidth. And you sell it. And it goes into a profit center. And basically you sell it at a very low profit so that it makes a little bit of money for the community. It goes into maintenance and things like that. And I think most people would buy it. If you don't want to buy it, you don't buy it. Because you're not affecting the performance and you're not requiring us to buy more from the phone company. But that would be one way to make something like this highly attractive. Because there's a lot of people that want to live way out there, but they can't because they got to have it. I'm one of them. I got If I didn't have really good, high-quality Internet service, you couldn't hear me talking to you right now. This enables my business. And let's face it, a lot of people that would want to live in a community like I'm describing are people that the reason they can do it is they have this mobility in their profession. They don't have to be at an office, whether they work for a company or work for themselves. But the enabler of that in our modern world is high-speed internet. I know if the apocalypse happens, there won't be internet anyway. Well, then that won't be a problem because they won't have it in suburbia either. 
So don't see the problem where the problem doesn't exist or don't think the problem actually matters. In this case, it's not that the problem doesn't exist. It's that the problem doesn't matter. Because if you can't get a T1 from AT&T, right, neither can your ISP and you're not getting internet in the middle of Los Angeles either. So that's another way to, to kind of skin the cat there. Um, again, I, I'm going to say this again just so everybody gets it. Lots privately held. Common areas are in a land-based trust. That's the way that works. The trust being held by the property itself. Cut into shares. right? How do you deal with the fact you've built this and now you're going to develop another 50 acres? It's called math and division. Right? How do you decide how much you're going to charge for the new property lots as new people come in? The existing property owners that are making the purchase decide what that's going to be based on what they need to do there and based on the fact that these new people are going to partake in what they've already built because it's not going to be two communities. If you do it adjacent, it's going to be one. They're joining the existing community. Right? Makes sense. It's simple. There's no reason to see complications in it. Um, I think that, again, I want to reiterate, there's kind of a priority that I would set if, if I were trying to organize this um, for the community property. Number one, first priority, I think I already said, community production. So the very first thing that all common areas should be dedicated to is providing for needs, desires, and wants of the community of the people that live there. What does it look like? How is it used for recreation? What happens to the harvest? And I think that done right, 20 to 30 acres will produce more of many things than that community could ever use. It will not produce everything you want. You will have to have a community store. You will have to have people to go off-site and shop at other stores. There will be all types of, of entrepreneurship within a community and barter that stays out of the cash realm. That's all great. But when you, you know, if you do this in, in, in Texas, which is probably where I would do it, you're not going to grow a lot of wheat. You're just not. It's not a good place to grow wheat. How many wheat farmers do you know in Texas? Right? So if people want bread, that's going to necessitate an outside purchase. But I'll tell you what you could grow. And especially in all these common areas and these big, beautiful shade trees called pecans, you could grow so many pecans in a place like this. That you could have a shelling operation selling shelled pecans, and the little bit of heat that you need in a, a climate like Texas and wood burners, there could be a giant pile of pecan shells that people could burn the shells for heat. And you'd still have more of those than you could use. You'd be selling them off for people to put in tumblers and clean, clean brass. So you take first for the community. You say, what about the person that takes more than they need? They'll only do that for so long. These are self-correcting pro A person that takes more pecans than they could possibly use is eventually going to go, I don't have any more room. Right? It's not a problem. So once that community needs met, then it can go to distribution. But I think before even commercial distribution, priority number two is building a profit center on education. There's more money. Just this is a business concept here. There's more money teaching people how to grow food than there is in growing food, at least right now. There is more money to be made by bringing a group of people in for a two-day workshop, showing them how you've done everything, teaching them how to do specific things, answering their questions, feeding them and entertaining them and sending them on their way than there is in harvesting the pecans off two or three pecan trees. So for this community to become vibrant, 
You want to bring in outside money. You want to bring in more to the community than goes out from the financial expenditure. You want to export goods and import economy. So that's how you do that. So that would mean that the person that goes, I want to live in a prepper community. We don't no one know where we are. We're on a mountain in the middle of nowhere and we got patrols out there with machine guns in the back of our pickup trucks and you don't get on this property unless you're a community member and if you don't know you, you're dead if you come over a little fence. That doesn't work for you. You want to build that? Again, remember what I said in the beginning. You are free to build that or any gradient between where I am and you are. This would not be a place that no one knows about. This would be a place that would be marketed. right? But it would also be marketed with this. In the event that we decide that we all need each other and we need to band together and we need to say that no one's coming in, we'll do that. And this would be a really bad place to test. So you can be nice and strong. At the same time. And people that are nice and strong, I'll tell you what, they're more respected than people that are angry and mean and strong. Far more respected, far more aided, far more helped, and far more likely to lead people than to have people decide we don't really like you and maybe you need to go away. I think it's a better way to do things. But the whole point would be, this wouldn't be an isolationist community. This would be a place where people would say, I want to go there. And I want to learn from what they're doing, even if I don't want to live like they do. I want to learn, and I want to bring some portion of that to my life, or my community, or my school, or whatever. Now, is it a pipe dream? I don't know. Would it would it look exactly like what I've described today? Probably not. I could probably describe the permaculture components, the design components, how things would be laid out, uh, put that all into a diagram, and that would probably be really close. Um, would the logistics and the way that the community would run be 100% what I said today? Almost, almost absolutely not, and I'll tell you why. As you started to put a community together, no matter how much I'm convinced that my way would be the best way, you get two heads, three heads, four heads together, and they're more than the sum of their parts, and all of a sudden you start going, you know what? Yeah, we need to be more flexible on that. Or, you know what? You're right. We need to be less flexible on this. We need to be a little bit more stringent on this, but... If it's going to be my community, then it's not going to be isolation. It's not going to be hidden. It is going to be a place where you run classes and trainings and things like that. And I'll tell you why. It's a smart thing to do. Every person that comes into that place and learns how to be self-sufficient and walks out the door is one less person you have to worry about coming back and coming to try to take what you have. Uh, number two, I think you put together a group like this. Ain't nobody taking nothing. I mean, you're going to have to send in the United States Army if you want to try to take over a community like this. A group of guys on motorcycles ain't going to happen. It just, it just isn't, right? Especially in a breakdown where, hey, kind of the gloves are off. It's now, it's now in that kind of, at least for a pocket anyway, of time and space without rule of law. Yeah, you got, you got, <laughs> you got 50 prepper families. Probably their nuclear families and some members, trusted members of their families that, that they would be willing to take care of in a situation that retreat to a place like this while there's a breakdown. And, 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 and Jose and the rest of MS-13 want to come, you know, go out of the city in a high-resource-rich high environment, travel out into the country, and then go out there and try to take from that group of people. I don't have to say it, right? I don't have to say it. You know what would happen. I think it's a fanciful idea in the first place. 
I don't see it happening that way. I see it more as being like a small group of opportunists that stumble upon it or something like that. But either way, right? Because then you, you I mean, this is, okay, we've talked about all of the, the, the sustainability, the concept, the liberty and all, but in the end, this is also a prepper community. So you can bet there'd be things like an organizational structure for defense, for guards, for all of that would come into that as well. Now, are you compelled to be part of that? No, but I would think that anybody coming to a community set up that way would naturally gravitate toward it. Now, some people aren't suited for it. You know, your 97-year-old father-in-law probably might be. Some of them are, but probably isn't suited for it. Your three-year-old little kid not suited for it. But I think the able-bodied would be more than willing. If you bring, build a libertarian community on sustainability, you don't even have to say it's preparedness. It is. I want to say something, though, here. This kind of brings me to a thing, and, and part of what I'm going to be talking about when, I, when I'm at the Liberty Forum in New Hampshire this time around, um, my presentation is going to be called The Prepared Libertarian. And I'm going to say something that libertarians may have a hard time accepting because we never like to be told that we have to do anything. But I think if you're going to be a libertarian, you have a responsibility to be prepared. I, I really do. I don't think it's ethical. Okay, to say, I don't need the government to take care of me, but then not do things so that you can take care of yourself. I, I just don't think, I think there's a conflict of personal interests there with reality. So I think that the libertarian community has a greater responsibility to be a culture of preparedness than the mainstream uh, community, because the mainstream community hadn't said we don't need the government. They're saying we want the government to fix this stuff. Now, I think they're, I think they're like misled, wrong, being manipulated, being used as pawns, but they haven't said, I don't need this. We have. When you say you don't need it, then it becomes incumbent upon you to walk the talk, to, to, to step up and provide for yourself. And I'd say, well, I don't need it, but since you're taking it, I'll take some back. That I'm okay with too. Hey, I drive on public roads. My money, that I spend pays for that damn road. I don't want it that way, but I'm going to do it. In fact, with my brand of libertarianism, the roads are one of the few things I think the government should be doing. I'm actually, when people say, well, if we didn't have, who would build the roads? There's people out there that say we don't need them. We could have toll roads. We could have private commerce, whatever. Fine, prove it. But if you're going to do something with my tax dollars, build in high-quality infrastructure to enable free trade, commerce, and travel, Knock yourself out. Knock yourself out, right? I'm even okay with governments building schools as long as they become more accountable to parents and students. I don't know that that works, so it might be a, a much better case for privatization of the school system, or at least the ability to opt out a little bit easier. Um, but when it comes to roads, you can do that. You can do that all day long. But when you say, well, I don't need the government to protect my home, then you better be able to protect your home. Yeah, I don't need the government to feed me. I have a job and I'll feed myself. Well, you better have some food so if you lose that job, you can keep feeding yourself. Now, does that mean that the person who becomes unemployed shouldn't collect unemployment? Absolutely not. But you shouldn't be dependent upon it. And I don't have a problem with unemployment. A lot of, I know a lot of you guys have lost jobs and have been on it. It doesn't bother me at all. You have to do two things in order to collect unemployment. Actually, three. One, you have to lose your job without doing it because you committed a felony or punched your boss in the face or you know did something illegal or embezzled funds and I mean you basically have to lose your job through no direct fault of your own. 
Um, number two, if you want to collect unemployment, you have to have a freaking job and work for a period of time and pay in. You know, that's, that's the second thing. If you're going to collect unemployment, you have to do. You have to pay in and you have to lose employment through no fault of your own. Third, you gotta, you gotta go out and get the job in the first place. So you have to have a job, you have to pay in, and you have to lose your employment not because you've quit or because you've committed a felony or embezzled money from the company. So that system is set up, and when you go to work, you don't get to decide whether you're part of that system or not. And I just had a recent exchange with somebody that was upset because I told a listener that wrote in and said, what about health insurance? You know, if I lose my job, we got all of this stuff worked out. Health insurance, we're kind of up in the air with. And I said, well, you know, Obamacare is coming in. Your concern is not, not only that I, I need it, but if I even chose not to have it for a while, they're going to fine me for not having it. And I said, well, one thing you can do if it's going to cost too much and you think you can make it through your period of time, pay the fine. And the second thing you can do is if there is some low-cost option available once this, because the enforcement doesn't go into, into place till next year. 2014 is when they're going to start fining you if you don't have insurance. And along with that is supposed to come ways that you can get insurance if you have lost a job or if you're self-employed that are going to be lower cost. And I said, find out what that is and buy the low-cost alternative. He was upset with me. He said, we're empowering the system. Well, you know, and then he wrote me back and said that he uh, works under the table and if he hacks his own leg off, it's his own problem. And the guy's 24 years old. Probably busts his ass. Probably a really great guy. Probably a guy I'd sit down and have a beer with. But he's 24. He doesn't have anybody to look after but himself. And the reality ain't there for him. So I'm kind of finishing up today going off script here a little bit. But what I want you to understand is there's a reason that I'm a libertarian instead of a voluntarist anarchist. And why I would run a society a certain way based on that. It's because I don't get to choose a lot of these things. And I am compelled to participate in a lot of things I don't want to participate in. And I am all for opting out individual secession, if you want to call it that, in every aspect it makes sense, but not to do it to be stupid. Let's go back to our young friend. He works under the table. He probably makes so little money working under the table. Because here's the thing. If you work under the table, and I'm going to pay you that way, I can only afford to pay you so much because I'm creating an expense for my company But I don't have a deduction. And I can only, and if I'm going to be a legitimate business, it's making a legitimate profit, I can only even, if I want to and be nefarious, hide so much income. So I'm only going to pay a person under the table so much money. Okay? So that's going to limit you to kind of a laborer's wage. If you are a laborer's wage in this country, whether you're doing labor or not for it, let me tell you what that means. You make so little income that you pay almost no income tax, possibly none at all. If you were married with one kid, you ain't paying nothing. You're probably getting more back than you put in. So the only taxes that person's going to pay on income that they earn would be their half of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, which is about 6-7%. It's actually a little lower because they cut it. Obama cut it, to be fair to him, by the way. Made the problem worse, but Obama actually has cut taxes. Just I hate the guy. But you got to be fair. you got to speak the truth. Obama cut the payroll tax. Two points, I think. Let's say it's 7% total. A person working under the table that goes to working above the table for a legitimate employer will probably make way more than a 7% differential on the net. And they're not hiding, and they're not breaking the law, and they have an income history, and they have access to credit. And So you're not helping anybody living that far away from the system. There's this place that exists 
that seems out of the reach of most anarchists uh, and out of the reach of many libertarians as well. That's an understanding of the entire game and picking and choosing how you interact, where you interact, doing so within the bounds of the law, but being intelligent and knowing about the manipulation done on both sides. And I'm all the way off script, so this is just a little rant here at the end. We're done with the community. I'll just say it now. You don't want to hear this. You can call the show over. But I want to bounce something off you about the way that we're politically divided and how it really happens and the truth behind it. When you look at people like our friend here, our 24-year-old friend, and I, I, I struggle to not call them kids because I know when I was when I was 22 years old and leading installation crews, where most of the people working underneath me were my father's age. Okay, I hated it when somebody called me a kid. I found it disrespectful. But I find now why, when you're in your 40s and you have a 23-year-old son, okay, and you see someone that's 24, they're a kid to you. But you're talking about a young man. Young men and women, let's say 18 to 25, that college range, that are not so stupid that they just believe everything the system tells them. You're talking about the intelligent members of that group that are nonconformist. Okay? So either you got the, 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 the conformist idiot or the intelligent conformist, and you, you know the two paths they take. But the nonconformist with some intelligence, and almost all the nonconformists have intelligence, even if they don't look like it. Even if you're thinking she's got a lip piercing and her hair's purple and she's an idiot. No. I'm telling you, the nonconformist segment of society are generally free thinkers. They may not be intelligent in the way that schools meter their intelligence, but they're more intelligent than the average idiot in suburbia on both sides. These two group, this group though, can show you more clearly the divide between the conformists because they go further to each side. The one group, the Occupy group, if you want to call them that, made up mostly of nonconformists that gravitate toward government fix our problems. Okay, They look at society as a whole, and they look at all these problems I'm trying to solve with a community, and they go, capitalism does not work. It's unfair. The mega corporations own everything. They control everything, and the government should fix it. Okay, you Leave the last part out, and they're not wrong. Now, hear me out here, because you know I'm not against capitalism, I'm not against free markets, I'm not against any of that. The people that gravitate toward where this individual that wrote me gravitates, they go to a different spectrum. And they say, look at the government. It's crapping on people. It's got its boot on the neck of the average person. All it does is take more and more and more and more. And damn it, there's not going to be anything left. Government doesn't work. And we need the free market and the government has to go away. Okay, All I've described for you is Democrats and Republicans flipping one degree out from, from, from the standard position. Okay, And you can even end up then with socialist libertarians and conservative libertarians as your output. But it's just the dichotomy, and it's just a dichotomy that gets magnified by a group of people that most of them, and I'm, I was a, you know, a guy that at, at 24 had a son to look after who was already six years old as an adopted son. Okay, so there are 20-somethings, I'm not, but most 24-year-olds today do not have children, or if they do, they don't have the family unit 
cohesion. You know, somebody's got a baby daddy going on, right? Or they just don't have any kids yet. They don't, they're not into a profession yet. They're not into a good career yet. They don't know what the hell they're going to do. Most kids today at 24 aren't even done with college yet. If they're going to college, they take six, seven, eight years to get through it. Or they've gotten out of college, but they're living at home in a basement. Or, and I'm not putting you, I'm just saying this is where it's at. When you're living like that, it's real easy to look at the guy 10 years down the road from you and say, I will never be him. And say, this is all a lie. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to participate in this society. I'm going to do whatever I want forever and have Peter Pan syndrome. Eventually that gets cured by reality. But that group can very clearly show us the divide. Here's what they don't get. And here's what the average American doesn't get. It's not that government doesn't work. It's not that business doesn't work. It's the two need to be separated far more than we need a separation of church and state. We need a separation of state and corporations. The only involvement the government should have with business is when a business violates its contract or harms somebody. And it should be there to enforce the liberty of the other party. That's it. And business should not be in government. Period. What you have in this country, and those who haven't heard this before are going to struggle with this, is fascism. Fascism is an economic system. It's not Nazis and concentration camps. That's something that a fascist government did. Okay? There's, you know, Rome was a republic, right? And, and, you know, Christianity aside, Rome was a republic that took prisoners who they deemed worthy of death and crucified them. It's a pretty horrific way for anybody to die. Right? So it's not like republic equals crucifixion and fascist, uh, economics equals, uh, concentration camps. Fascism is an economic system. That was just something a fascist government did. They didn't have concentration camps in Italy. Mussolini was a fascist. Fascism, classical fascism, the government and the corporations work together and utilize the separations in the classes to further the good of the state and the corporation. So it's good that there's a low class, a middle class, a poor, and affluent. And those classes are to be inter, you know, worked, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The government and the corporations are to act as intermediaries between those groups and leverage them. Use them is another way to say this, right? If I use a lever to move a rock, I've used the lever to move the rock, right? Used. So I'm, you use your people and you leverage their differences and their concerns to further the good of both. The only difference between that and what we have today is in classic fascism, the government's hand is higher. The government tells the corporations what to do, but the goal's the same and the net result's the same. The corporations get rich and the politicians get more powerful. The only thing that we've happened here, if you think about putting your right hand over your left hand and your right hand is the, is, is the state and your lower hand is the corporation, just flip it around and put your left over your right. The corporation tells the government what to do. But they're still in coercion. And this is what's destroyed our liberty in this country. It, it's a direct net result. A government without the corporate interest involved in it at any level wouldn't have the money nor the concepts to infringe upon liberty at the level that they've done. And a corporate group, without the government to impose monopolies, without the government to get in the way, without the government to create textbook-thick levels of regulation so that somebody can open a freaking mom-and-pa grocery store, without all that, the free market could function. 
The reason that people say government doesn't work, you know, government for the people, by the people, of the people doesn't work, and the reason people say capitalism doesn't work is there ain't a person alive in America today that's ever seen it. You've never seen it. You've never seen it. Your grandparents never saw it. They saw more of it than you, but there's not a person listening to me right now whose grandparents actually saw that happen. It's never actually existed in this country. It's been a lot closer to it. We were a lot closer to it at one time, but we've never really been there. There needs to be that, that separation. Back to my community real quick as we close up here. That's what I'm trying to create. That's what I would create in a community like that. I want a community, yes, can feed itself, clothes itself, create, but I don't want anybody hampered by anybody else. You notice in the disagreement with the arbitration process, the board of arbitration doesn't say, we've made our decision and the two of you will do this. The board of arbitration says we've listened to the concerns of, of Bill and we've listened to the concerns of Tom. We, we've, we've valued them both and we've tried to stand apart from the two of you. And we've tried to look at this with a completely logical viewpoint, without any emotions or anger, and simply said, what's right and what's wrong here, and how can both sides compromise a little bit to find a solution? And we've recommended this compromise for for you guys. Do you agree with that? And and Bill and Tom can go, you know what? Yeah, okay, we agree, or I don't know, or I'm not sure. Okay, great, go away for two days. Nothing that's being done is going to get either one of you killed or hurt, Okay, no one's going to die here. No one's going to set anybody else's house on fire. Come back in 48 hours. Let us know how you feel about it then. You have time to think about it. And they come back and go, well, you know, I'm okay with this and this, but not this. And Bill says, I'm okay with that and that too, but I don't like this either. Let us consider that again. Okay, here's our recommendation a second time. Maybe we've changed it a little bit. Maybe we've modified a little bit. Can you guys agree on it now? No? Go away for 48 hours and come back. Come back again. How do you feel now? Do you know what? Almost inevitably, that problem is going to get solved. That problem is going to get solved. Because you've had to look at each other. You've had to talk to each other. You've actually had to hear a voice of wisdom. Our society needs this. But they don't need it imposed on them. They need it demonstrated. Will I ever build this community? I have no idea, period. I don't know. There's some things in the works to maybe make it happen. They may or may not work. I may or may not be able to pull it off. I don't know. Will somebody hear this and go do it and do it better, even if I never do it? Maybe. I don't know. Today is just an idea for how society could run better. And I really think it could. And I really think that we can't necessarily do things this way. Uh, and just say that's the way it's going to be from now on, or vote it into place or anything like that. I really don't. But I think that we can all do this in our own societies. I think when we have a problem with a neighbor, it's incumbent upon us to go talk to them first. And not to pound on their door and go, hey, asshole, you did this. No. You know what? I don't care how right you are. I mean, there's a, there's a skill you can develop. How about basic human psychology? You go attack somebody, they resist. But if you go, hey, Tom, you know... um, you guys set up this basketball court for the kids to play with, and it's it's on your property, but you know we're right next to each other, and every time the kids shoot, the ball rolls up into my yard. They're up in my yard walking around. I work hard on my grass. You know, this is totally the opposite of where I'm at, right? Because I don't want to be in a place that's that close to each other, but there's people that live there, and that's what their concerns are. You know, would you consider moving it so that it's over toward the larger piece of your property? And if the ball misses, that they're spending more time in your yard than mine and making sure they pick. You know what? 
you're gonna, that's probably going to sort itself out. But hey, asshole, why'd you put this here? You have no right to do it. It's going to result in, actually, it's on my property, so tough crap. And, and then you end up with somebody calling the cops, right? Or somebody just calls the police right away. You know, I, I do think police officers need to start doing things like this. And I, maybe some of them do. Okay, you want us to come out. Why? Because your neighbor mowed the lawn and mowed one foot over to your side. Have you spoken to your neighbor about this yet? Why are you really concerned about it? Do you, do, you, do you have any hostile intentions towards your neighbor? Does your neighbor seem to have any hostile intentions towards you? Okay, then we're not going to send a police officer out over this. Because you haven't made any attempt to resolve I know that's a fine line. Because then one guy shoots another guy and something gets sued. I'm not here to solve all your problems today. Just here to make you think. Hopefully I have. And with that, I know I kind of went off track here at the end. I'm sorry about that. But hopefully I've given you some good ideas for how a resilient community that's based on liberty can really work. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Revolution